Welcome everyone back to the T206 podcast. I'm Stephen Gugliacello. I'm here with John Parado. John's our beat writer here at the Beaver County Times covering the Pirates and all things Major League Baseball. John, a couple of weeks ago we talked about the pace of play and how slow it, the game seemed to be and especially my gripe was against Juan Nicasio. Now this week it comes out by um, Jason Stark of ESPN's reporting that Major League Baseball is looking at two potential rule changes in the offseason one of which is getting rid of the four-pitch intentional walk, and the other is raising the strike zone to above the knees as opposed to at the knees. Do you? I guess the first question is, do you think either of these can help speed up the p- pace of play, and do you think they'll even vote them in? Well, I mean, the four-pitch intentional walk will, will take a, a little bit of time off the game, but I mean, how many intentional walks... Are they're usually in a game, so it may take a few seconds off the, off the yeah. game. But uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, I, uh, I mean, that's kind of rule. I can go back to playing baseball in high school. That was a rule. You just said put four fingers up, and the guy went right to first base. Mm. I kind of like the idea of having to throw the pitches because some guys really struggle with that. Yeah, uh, I can remember the, the first time. Uh, Bobby Bradley, who was a kid, was drafted, I believe, 98 or 99, was the Pirates' first-round pick. He ended up not making it to the major leagues. He had a lot of arm problems. But he lost a game in spring training one day when he was about 19 or 20 years old. He threw a wild pitch on an intentional walk and let the winning run in. And, and he had said, and you know, I really thought of it, he said, I was, you know, all the way growing up, I, I never – I never had made, you know, threw pitches on an intentional walk, and it really threw me uh, how to do it. And he yeah. goes, and I just uncorked the wild one. So, uh, you know, that, uh, so I, I don't know if that's going to change uh, the time of the game. As, as far as the, uh, the, you know, shortening up the strike zone, I, I don't see how it's going to make the games faster because I think either two things are going to happen, and I, you're either going to have more walks because it's a short or smaller strike zone, right. and walks always add time to the game. If you have ten walks in a game, you know you're going to play at least three hours. Right. And uh, if you increase the scoring, that's going to most likely increase the time in the game as well. So this kind of runs counter to everything Rob Manfred says about wanting to pick up the pace of the game, wanting to to, to shave some time off the games. Now you're looking at these uh, you know, proposals uh, in a collective bargaining agreement. It's, it's going to go the other way. It's going to increase scoring, and, uh, and, and the more scoring, uh, you know, the, the seemingly the, the longer the games are going to last. Though I, I would like to point out, in Game 7 of the 1960 World Series, final score, Pirates 10, Yankees 9, time of the game, 2 hours, 36 minutes. <laughs> well... Uh, and I want to credit Jared Stonecipher, one of our reporters here at the Times, for emailing me this story. What always bothers me is the people who, who say, why not just put the guy on base? Why throw the pitches? And my response is, you ever see a wild pitch on a on an intentional walk? If you say yes, then it happens often enough. Yeah, and... Uh- there was uh, somebody a few years ago, I want to say it was Miguel Cabrera, reached out and hit a single on a uh, ball that was not quite far enough outside. Yeah. And uh, it also, I remember in the World Series when I was a kid, the other way around, uh, Cincinnati with uh, Johnny Benches, the, the catcher, uh, they set up like an intentional walk. He ended up getting b- back behind the plate and uh, 
whoever the pitcher was, I, I can't remember now, it was so long ago, threw a strike right down the middle, and that, that kind of <laughs> <laughs> shook things up a little bit. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if, if, if the, you know, the four just moving, waving the guy on the first base. I, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I mean, and as far as the, the rest of the rules, uh, you know, the one great thing about baseball, if you look at football, you even look at basketball, between now and 20 years ago, the rules are very much different. Mm-hmm. The great thing about baseball, you can go back and watch a game from 1950s, and the rules are, are basically the same. Yeah. Uh, you can talk the designated hitter and a few things, uh, you know, but for, for the most part, baseball has really been timeless with the rule changes, and you can go back, you know, for a long, long time, back to, you know, the 1800s when they had, you know, seven balls for a walk at one point and things like that. Yeah. But basically, since the early 1900s, the rules have been pretty uniform, uh, you know, across uh, generations, across decades, and uh, I don't know if, 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 if I really want to mess with that if I'm baseball. Yeah, and I'm on the same page you are. I think if you shrink the strike zone, all you're going to do is create more walks. Yeah. You're not going to force a p- pitcher who likes to nibble to throw over the middle of the plate. And frankly, why not go the other way with it? For, we'll go Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin style. Let's expand the strike zone so it's yeah. six inches outside of the plate each way. So it's a foot, you know, shoulders to the <laughs> mid shins and just mow these guys down. Well, you know, it seems like nobody's ever satisfied. If, if there's a lot of runs scored, well, you know, you got to do something. There's too many runs scored. You know, you got to right. give the advantage back to the pitcher. So now you have the advantage back to the pitchers. You started drug testing, so a lot of these guys aren't using, you know, supplemental aids to try to help them. Uh, you know, the, and you have pitching now, and I think I think what you're seeing now is a generation of kids, or not kids now, they're grown-ups who had their own specialized pitching coaches and things like that growing up that the generation before never had. I mean, you see a lot of former big leaguers now, and that's what they do when they get out of baseball. Uh, you know, if they don't get into coaching with a team or broadcasting or scouting or, or what have you, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them give private pitching lessons, and that's that's what they do for a living. And uh, I think what you're seeing is so many kids got those private lessons that they grew up in the pitching's just better all the way around because of it in, in Major League Baseball because these guys were highly trained from, from a very young age compared to pitchers of previous generations. So now it's like, well, how do we get offense back in the game? And like, well, maybe hit better would be, you know, yeah. number one. Like maybe Bring the be, steroids be, back. Yeah, <laughs> or, or if not that, <laughs> beat the shift, hit the ball the other way, you know? I mean, you know, people can play, oh, yeah, they shift. You know, you can't score because they shift. We'll hit the ball the other way, and then they won't shift you anymore. They'll play you straight up. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's it, the game goes in cycles, and, and, and I think a lot of it's just natural over the time of history. And and right now we're in a pitching-dominated era. There's a lot of great pitchers. I mean, you, you look now uh, in both leagues, and, you know, you can, you can look at, at 10 guys right now with, without even really having to stop and think for long who have legitimately probably will end up in the Hall of Fame when their careers are over. And, yeah. you know, that's just a cycle we're in now. And, uh, you know, I think everything will, will, will eventually turn back to hitting. And it, if you look through the history of baseball, it's always been that way. You, you have some eras, an era where maybe pitching is, is strong and hitting, and it just kind of works out. And But it always seems reactionary that, that everybody wants to, to, to change uh, whatever it is. If there's more offense, well, we need to help the pitching. And if there's better low scoring, all of a sudden, well, we got to help the hitting and uh, just let it go for what it is. I've got a radical idea for you. You know what will make offense go up? Expansion. 
Well, that that's proven to be the case in the other times they've expanded. And I know Rob Manford is at least thinking about it, uh, though uh, I get the feeling there's not a whole lot of momentum among the owners to want to expand because you still have unresolved issues in Tampa Bay and Oakland where they've had a hard time getting stadiums. And, uh, yeah. you know, in uh, Montreal, uh, you know, and there's a lot of momentum now right now to put a team in Montreal, but, uh, you know, we'll, kind of see how that would go, uh, you know, and I know Mexico's another place they want to go, and I, I just think there are a lot of owners that just don't think that the finances will work in Mexico, even in Mexico City, which is, is by far the biggest population of any city in North America, yeah. like two and a half times bigger than New York. Oh, yeah. But uh, so, uh, yeah, that would uh, – it would solve some other problems too. It would make for a more balanced schedule. You balance the leagues out. You could put one mm-hmm. in each uh, league. And you'd have four four-teams divi- four, four divisions. And, uh, and yeah, I think it definitely would, would boost the offense because you would be adding, uh, you know, more – Pitching uh, would, would be less than would be considered major league grade pitching at the time. So uh, right. it, it's something that's definitely on Rob Manford's agenda, but I just get the feeling that there aren't a whole lot of owners behind it right now. It's a nice idea, though. It is. <laughs> it is. And I know the people in Montreal are very excited, and they should be, because uh, what happened to their last franchise where Major League Baseball let it die on the vine so they could move the team to Washington, right. which was uh, – you know, if this happened to any other business, it'd be collusion and racketeering and everything else. Charges would would, would have been filed for what, the way that whole situation was handled. But sure. because Ma- Major League Baseball has the antitrust exemption with Congress, they can basically run a cartel yeah. and do whatever they want, which they did. And, uh, you know, they, they made the, the situation so untenable in Montreal that people quit going to the games and, you know, because they quit trying to win because they wanted to move the team to Washington. And it's a shame because back in the days of traveling, which was many years ago now, uh, Montreal was, was certainly one of my favorite stops uh, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the National League when they were in the National League East with the Pirates years ago. Uh, it was a really very cosmopolitan city, very, uh, a very re- really great city. And, uh, and I was there when... When it was a baseball town, it, I mean, you know, it's always a hockey town first, but, it, you know, unlike it was the last five or six years when people actually quit caring, when Major League Baseball quit caring, Montreal was a very good baseball city at one time. Well, let's be fair, though. The attendance started dropping after the strike, too, when that well, team broke up. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that hurt because, I mean, they clearly were the best team in, in baseball that yeah. year in 1994, and that was, you know, that was the year they had had the heartbreak in 81 where, where Rick Mundy beat them in the ninth inning of the NLCS in the last game and you know they really thought that was year they were finally going to get back to the playoffs and get to the World Series and it, and it just didn't happen and you know that started it that started the decline and and then you know they basically sold off all their players the following year once the strike ended and and it's sad because you know I know a lot of people say ah, Montreal you know they didn't draw but uh, it's people with very short-sighted that don't understand the history of baseball in that city even before it got an expansion team mm-hmm. in 69 one of the great minor league cities uh, when they were the Dodgers top affiliate Jackie Robinson made his yeah. pro debut in Montreal Roberto Clemente played in Montreal that's where the Pirates drafted him off of uh, out of off Brooklyn when they didn't protect him on the 40-man roster in, in the Rule 5 draft uh, mm-hmm. back in 55 and you know, just a great history, and it's a great city. And like I said, I, I, I was there when people were into baseball, and and, and people who say it, it nobody cares, it, it's not it's not true. People quit caring about baseball in Montreal because Major League Baseball gave them every reason in the world to want to quit caring. That's fair, mm-hmm. but uh, when we think about when we talk about it, though, 
we're talking about Oakland and um, Tampa Bay, both teams who are in dire needs of a new stadium. If if there would ever be a franchise that would need a new stadium, it's the one up in Montreal. There were exhibition games up there during spring training between the uh, Blue Jays and the Red Sox. I, f- I forgot how run down Olympia Olympic it, Stadium is. Yeah, it, it, you know, it was at the time it was a good idea. I mean, they had the Olympics in '76, and you know they retrofitted it for baseball. But but just it just it it just outlived its usefulness very quickly. Much like Turner Field did in Atlanta, the same kind of deal. They built it for the Olympic. It was the Olympic Stadium in '96. Yeah. They turned it into baseball, and it just never really felt like a baseball stadium there. And now they're moving into a new ballpark in the suburbs next year. But that would definitely be part of the deal. If they get an expansion team, they would have to have the financing lined up to have a new stadium because there's no right. way. Now, Major League Baseball may, may – Put a team there before a stadium is built, and say, "Well, you can play an Olympic Stadium for a couple of years while you're building a, the new stadium." But, but I, there's just no way that Major League Baseball would go back there in that stadium as a as a permanent facility. It would only have to be a bridge facility to a new stadium was built. And there's people who claim that there there uh, there are people in Montreal that have the money that, that are willing to put it up pri- in in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Bring baseball back, which which would be interesting. Uh, I know uh, certainly the Oakland A's uh, wish somebody in their private sector would, at the very <laughs> least, be able to get toilets that flush in both clubhouses <laughs> <laughs> to provide those at the uh, Coliseum, that the O or whatever it is, no longer the O dot Co Coliseum, whatever it's called now. Uh, in, in Tampa Bay, uh, t- to their credit, they do the best they can with that facility. They really do. I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, I mean, it's a fun atmosphere considering it's under a roof and, and they, have, they have like the best concessions in baseball. They, they yeah. really, really do. And it, it, it's not only is it a dome stadium, but it's in the, it's not in the part of your drawing area that's easy to get to being right. in, in the southern part of St. Petersburg where people from Tampa are going to have to, even from the southern part of Tampa, it's a good half-hour drive. And if you live up in the northern part of Tampa, you're looking for about an hour to get to the ballpark. So I really think that the base, I do think baseball can work in Tampa St. Pete, but I think they need an outdoor stadium or a retractable roof stadium. And I really think the smart place would be built in the south, south of Tampa where people in Tampa could get to it fairly easily and people in St. Petersburg can also get to it fairly easily. But because where it's where it is now, it just is not near a big population base. So it, it makes it difficult for people to go to the games. And, and really, I mean, you're in Florida. Who, who wants to sit inside and go to yeah. a baseball game? Well, John, let's talk about the big signing by the Pirates last week, a signing many people may not have seen coming. And that's Francisco Cervelli getting a three-year, $30-plus million extension. Um, you've been talking for a while that you didn't think he was going to be back. We, You projected a salary up in this nature for, for Cervelli. How surprised were you when this contract was signed? I was because usually, you know, stuff like that leaks out at least a little bit. And, and you know, at least you usually hear, well, I think they're talking maybe they might get something done. Both sides really kept it very much under wraps. Nothing leaked out. The only thing that made me wonder a little bit, I saw the Pirates Public Relations people had pulled Cervelli aside the night before after the game in a clubhouse, and they were talking, and I, 
I just thought it was kind of odd. It was kind of like hushed tones in the corner of the clubhouse. And, yeah. But but even then, I thought eh, maybe you know it could be just something totally nothing to do with that a contract. Uh, I think you know when Cervelli was willing to come down on his on his deal. Uh, you know, I think you know he went from thirty nine. Which he was asking thirty nine million for three years in, in the winter, and, and the Pirates didn't want to go that high. And uh, and and I, and I could understand that as a thirty year old catcher who has an injury history, but he yeah. has been pretty durable here in Pittsburgh. And you know when he when he was willing to come down to thirty one, uh, that was the number the Pirates were comfortable with. And and I also think what what has happened here, even since the winter when this first came out, that floating that he wanted this. The 39 for three is I think the Pirates kind of came to realize that Elias Diaz is made and not because he had elbow surgery here it's going to knock him out to the all-star break I think there's question whether he's really a number one catcher from some people in the organization and mm-hmm. and, and I think it's the same with Ryan McGuire who was one of their first round draft picks in 2012 at Altoona I think I think the Pirates will feel comfortable with either one of them defensively in the big leagues but I, I just think that they aren't. I'm not. It's not that they they are unsh- that they they don't think for sure that these kids can't develop into number one catchers. But neither one has shown enough offensively to be an everyday catcher in the big leagues yet. Mm-hmm. And I just think the Pirates didn't want to gamble. And I think they liked what they had in Cervelli. They like uh, the intangibles he brings uh, as a leader. Mm-hmm. He really does. And I think a lot of times that's. Uh, that's kind of overrated. In this case, it's really not. He can throw. Uh, you, I mean, you know, he's a great leader. But other than that, he's a pretty good thrower, and, and he's a very good pitch framer, and he handles the pitching staff very well. He, he takes a lot of pride in it. Mm-hmm. I think the Pirates put all that together, and the fact that, you know, now that he's gotten a chance for regular playing time, he's shown that, you know, he's a, he's a pretty good major league hitter, especially for a catcher. And, and they just thought they would go with the short thing. Uh, you know, if in, in a three-year term, uh, it, it, money that they felt was reasonable, they did it. And, you know, it would have been interesting because, uh, you know, catchers rarely get to the market, good catchers, and it would have been interesting to see what he'd have uh, received uh, if he'd have put himself on the market this winter. But, you know, he's also smart about this. He knows that he's found a home here. He finally got a chance to play every day or, mm. or pretty regularly, uh, you know, as much as a catcher would be an everyday player. And it just didn't happen with the Yankees. And, uh, you know, it wasn't going to happen with Brian McCann and, and Gary Sanchez coming up behind him. So, you know, he's found a home. He's popular here. He's popular in the clubhouse. He's a, a huge fan favorite, and uh, it's just a good situation for both sides. Uh, and it just is one of those things that it just it just made sense from both sides. And uh, you know, and I'm glad. I'm glad for him. He's a good guy. He's worked hard for a long time to, to get his chance to, to be a big league uh, regular. And uh, you know, and it's good for the Pirate fans because uh, you know the Pirates are starting to show now that they will step up at least to keep their own guys. I'd still like to see them now and again maybe try to sign players from somewhere else. But at least the guys they're comfortable with, they're willing to shout some money now. So that's uh, certainly a positive step uh, for, for the Pirates. Now, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to put on my Yankee fan hat. Today's Yankee reference is brought to you by the Dunkin' Donuts K-Cup I'm drinking. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts, I don't drink Starbucks, so drink Dunkin' Donuts. Um... As a Yankee fan, we always have this, the fans have this mentality of what's a million dollars here, two million dollars here, three million dollars there. Do you think anybody in the organization regrets not signing Russell Martin when they had the chance? 
Well, no, because I don't think anybody saw him going to $82 million for five years. And, I, and I, you know, I'm the first one to say the Pirates are cheap. I mean, I've said that for yeah. years. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got plenty of angry emails because the Pirates fans are the only fans who have been convinced that it's a bad thing for ownership to spend money. It's just very an odd dynamic. But anyway, <laughs> I, I digress. Uh, no, uh, not at $82 million for five years. I mean, to me... That was an overpay by the Blue Jays. He's a good player. He's a good catcher. He's a good hitter. I think he was more valuable to the Blue Jays probably because he's Canadian. I think so, too. Than he, than he would be to someone else. And, and certainly he, he did a lot. He had two really good years with the Pirates. And the intangibles he brought can't be denied. I mean, him and A.J. Burnett played a big part inside that clubhouse yeah. of changing the attitude of losing to, hey, why can't we win? And then once they started to win, it's like, well, we should win. We have a good team. And, and, and there's something, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, but, I mean, you look what Cervelli has done for a lot less money. And, I mean, he's not been Russell Martin, but he hasn't been that far off of Russell Martin in the two years he's been here in Pittsburgh. Right. And certainly – Compared to what Toronto has paid Russ, compared to what the uh, the Pirates have paid Cervelli, I think the Pirates have probably gotten better value. And, and like I said, if it were a severe drop off, I'd say yeah, but but it really hasn't been. And you know, and Chris Stewart has been a solid number two. So I mean, they really have had a really good catching tandem here. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, I think they made the right move. And, and they would have kept Russell Martin if uh, if 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 even if you you just didn't been within their ballpark. Right. They would have kept him, but I mean, he he Toronto blew everybody out of the water at eighty two million for five years. I mean, nobody thought he was going to get that. Do you think bringing in even marginal guys who have been on championship teams? Do you think that should be more of an off season project for the Pirates? Say say somebody who's a marginal major leaguer like Joe Quinn Arias, he's been on three championship teams with the Giants. Now he may not make your everyday roster. But, you know, he's a fifth, fourth infield or fifth infielder just mm-hmm. float around. And here's a guy with three rings. Can somebody like that help this team? I think it can, but I don't know as much now as it would have a few years back before they finally put an end to all the losing. And now they've been in the playoffs three years in a row. Mm-hmm. I, I think they have a core group now that's won. I, I don't know if they necessarily need as much as they did a couple of years ago when they got Martin and Burnett. And, and they, they hadn't won at that point. But... You know, it certainly wouldn't hurt, but but I don't know if it's, if the urgency to bring in guys that know how to win, or or to sh- to show the team how to win is really there because I really think the Pirates they've, they've learned how to win now, and I think that part of it it was really helped by Martin and and Burnett and even Clint Barmouth to an extent, and mm. uh, you know it never hurts to have championship experience type players, but. Uh, but uh, I, I think it, the necessity is not quite a, as what it was a few years back. Okay. I guess that'll do it for us this week. John, people can find you on Twitter, jparado, double R, double T. If anybody has a question for John in our podcast, they can tweet at John or they can tweet at me. I'm at BCT Steve. Very easy to find. Um, so I guess that'll be it for this week, John. That'll wrap it up in the, the Arizona Diamondbacks and – OTAs OT. on Tuesday, Steelers oh, OTA, on. because listen, you know that nothing matters now with Steelers OTAs listen, starting. This, I understand so the Pirates we'll have our are next seven. Podcast next March. We'll talk, no. <laughs> <laughs>
I understand the no. Pirates are seven games out. C- no. Come on, give me another month of baseball at least before we're talking Steelers. <laughs> I, we got through rookie minicamp. Nobody was I talking know. Steelers. I know. Chris Bradford wasn't knocking down our door to take our to- podcast slot. I know. Well, you know, it's like the Buckos. Maybe they should have OTAs now too. In the offseason, <laughs> they could go out and hit in the snow in January and have batting practice in the snow. Can they use orange balls like golf? Sure, why not? <laughs> Charlie Finley wanted to do it 40 years ago. He thought it would be a great idea for Major League Baseball, and everyone laughed at him. Now see, what goes around comes around. I think we're still laughing at him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you.